This is Hank Davis, and you're listening to the Narratives of North Broad podcast, Stories from Temple Health. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Oon, the renowned robotic surgeon at LKSOM, whose patients come from all over the country and the world. Dr. Oon will share with us his early life story, how his father was a missionary, and how he came to America and Philadelphia. He will tell the remarkable story of how he made lemons into lemonade. He didn't match on match day, but determination, hard work, and serendipity landed him in the perfect place to pioneer robotic surgery in urology. He was just given the Honored Professor Award for Lewis Katz School of Medicine faculty by Temple alumni. This is given to people who exemplify the knowledge and values that Temple strives to instill. Dr. Oon is thoughtful, open, and incredibly easy to talk with. We really enjoyed our conversation. So without further ado, I now bring you Dr. Daniel Oon. One moment, you're a young boy growing up in Korea. The next moment, your dad becomes a medical missionary and moves the entire family to the West Bank in Palestine. So why did he do that, and what was that like? Um, He was a a post-Korean War Army physician in the beginning, and he got got very ill. Um, He had some kind of lung problem, and he... uh, was told that he wasn't really going to live much longer, and he was deteriorating pretty quickly. Um, my father, who uh, I think through this process became a very religious person, um, made a promise to God that if he were to get up, and if he were to see his kids grow up, that he would devote his whole life to God. And um, if, if there's anybody I've met in my life that is good to his word, it's my dad. I mean, to a fault. <clears throat> um, and so he, um, he, he did exactly what he promised, which was sold our house, or I think we had two houses back then, and we, got, we had lived a fairly comfortable life in Korea. We had people that took care of the house, and... Um, we got rid of all of that, and then next thing you know, we were, <laughs> we stopped in Philadelphia, actually, uh, in Germantown for a quick time, just before, you know, to adjust, and then, and then next thing you know, we were in Palestine, and um, we were there for uh, almost five years. Wow. Wow. How old were you then? Well, when we first left, we were, <coughs> I was, uh, I was four years old. And uh, by the time we left, that completed the third grade. So, you know, as Hank asked, so what was that like for you having your life, not on so much disrupted, but just living in, in the West Bank in, you know, at that time? Yeah, so I, I think about that all the time. Um, living in Palestine in the late 70s, um, 
crossing through the checkpoints every day to go to school because we went to school in Jerusalem. And, you know, I think that through the eyes of a child, it's all, it's all fine, you know? You know, I don't think that you really understood the geopolitical issues that were going on at the time. You know, um, we, we knew that um, there was potential danger at any point because my parents would always remind us of this. Um, and uh, when you're staring at um, German Shepherds and Uzis every day, there's spikes on the ground, and soldiers looking in. Um, you know, you, you always knew that there was, you know, a reason for all of that, and there was potentially some danger. I think one time when we were in the marketplace um, near Bethlehem, there was a bomb that went off uh, somewhere. Um, you know, there was always talk because we, you know, look, we had we had uh, a lot of friends who were um, Arabs, and they were always uh, talking about, you know, the, the impact of their life and the difficulties. And, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, blaming, um, you know, the government uh, for their troubles. You know, and growing up as a child, you know, you were ignorant to a lot of these things. And, um, you know, I remember uh, having conversations with my Palestinian friends on the playground about the PLO and how, um, you know, their views of the PLO were very positive. And then I'd go to school and I'd have, uh, you know, and I'd meet Jewish kids that tell me the PLO was really bad. And so as, as a child, you know, not really understanding a lot of these things, you certainly were aware that there was conflict in the area, you know. And so it was a very interesting way to grow up. Uh, you know, most, more than half of my classmates were there because their parents were in the UN, you know. And so um, having <coughs> classmates from all over the world from different parts of the world um, and understanding that look we're all different you know that you looked around it didn't take very long to figure out that I was we we're all minorities essentially because there was a little slice of the whole world in my classroom growing up now and looking at my kids and looking at a lot of American youth I, I wish that they had more exposure to this type of childhood because I think that it would make us much more aware of the differences that are out there in this world. Right. How fascinating. So you mentioned Germantown, I think. And so what was the connection to Philadelphia? And you came back to Philadelphia. So just bring us home for a minute. Yeah, so the mission organization that sent us out um, was based out of Germantown. And so um, we stopped there before we flew out permanently uh, to the West Bank. And um, then when my father got ill again, and needed medical care, we came to the United States for that care. I think my dad was admitted to what used to be Frankfurt Hospital. Um, and he was there in the hospital, I think, for a month or two. And we lived in Ger Germantown uh, initially, and then we eventually moved out to the, to the suburbs. When did you start thinking medicine for yourself? <clears throat> well, my dad always told us that his dream was that um, one of us would be a physician, and they always seemed to look at me when they said, <laughs> when they said that. And so uh, I don't know if I selected it or they selected it, uh -huh. but I also had a natural inclination towards math and science, and I don't know how much of that was like subconscious. Uh, um, but I always looked at my dad, always revered my dad. Um, you know, my, I always say my dad is my hero uh, to this day, and so. Um, 
I, I pursued medicine from as young as I could remember. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to help people um, because of my dad. Is he still alive? Is he still here? My dad's still alive. He's still here. He's, he's in good health. That's great. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, no, I, I've, That's been able, wonderful. I've been able to tell him this before, you know, it's too late. So uh, in that vein, you have said that your youth was defined by two things. You were always a tinkerer taking things apart and that wrestling, you loved wrestling. And so I wanted to ask you, why were these two things so important to you and how did each in its own way influence your path or your life in medicine? So I don't, I don't think that if I'd become a cardiologist or if I'd become an internist, that I may have looked at those things necessarily. But <laughs> being that I'm a urologist and I do robotic surgery, I definitely think those were, were two very important uh, pieces in my life. Um, the, the tinkerer is, I, you know, I, I, my mom tells me these stories ever since I was a child that I would come to their bedroom when I was, they were not there and I would literally disassemble their telephone and they would come back into the room and freak out on me and I would go, oh, no problem, and put it back together again. <laughs> And then they would work. And she would just say, it's just so strange as a young child, you had something about you know, understanding how things worked and being able to tinker around with your hands. You know, so from a very early uh, age, they would give me things like the radio that broke. Um, she'd say, something's wrong with the wash machine. <laughs> you know, and I would instead of hiring someone, we're gonna get our little kid to come fix it. And I would just start like trying to figure it out. And sometimes I couldn't do it, and sometimes more often than you would think, I would figure it out and I would jerry rig something back together again and I'd be able to fix it. And my parents would always crack up and go, you know, there's something about this kid. And so I've always had that in me and I I never really thought it was really unique or different, but it certainly has come back at this point in my career is something that has really helped me to get to this point to be able to do what I'm able to do um, in a very unique way. Um, going about wrestling, you know, I'm <laughs> so it's timely that you asked me this because I went to my son's wrestling banquet um, just this past week, and I'm so proud that he's a wrestler because I know what it did for me. And uh, it's like, I almost feel like I want to cry when I hear the coach get up there and get these speeches because it reminds me of what I felt when I was at his age and what, how important it was to me. I just, I think that um, wrestling gave me tenacity and grit. I mean, I think that's what it taught me. I was the smallest kid in the class. I don't think I was the most charming of my classmates. You know, um, I got picked on a lot. And um, I was really in a shell, um, very timid, very shy, until I wrestled. And starting from the seventh grade, I walked into that room and something just spoke to me about those kids just on the mat, you know, um, giving it all they got. Just the smell was awful. <laughs> they were covered in sweat, bloody noses. And there's something that I loved about it and it just it immediately drew me. And so. I found myself to be a wrestler, and man, those were like some of the toughest days that I could remember. And I remember um, when the season was over, and there were so many times when you just wanted to quit the season just because it was so hard. But I remember at the end of the, every season, I would look 
at life and go, there's anything I wanted to do, like you just knew you could do it if you put your mind to it because that's what wrestling gave you. It gave you that confidence that, it, that you could do anything that you sought out to do if you worked hard enough at it. And, you know, I always tell people, you know, when it, to going into medicine, it's not really about how smart you are. I think it's about how determined you are, you know. You know, what makes you into a good doctor is not because you're that smart. For Pete's sake, it's, it's urology, right? It's like advanced <laughs> plumbing, right? You don't have to be that smart to be a great urologist, but I think you, you do have to be detail-oriented. You have to be picky. You have to be hardworking. And I think that's what really makes you good at what you are, are doing. I think a lot of it also is, and I, you touched on this, is how much you're willing and able to endure. And I think I, I played college basketball, and some of those days were the hardest. And now being in medical school and having some of those really difficult days and nights stunning, I just had an exam today. And last night I was just thinking, if this, if I can get through some of those hardest workouts or practices or games, then I can get through this exam tomorrow. So... I definitely uh, feel the same way about that. And I guess you found during your med school days and residency and some of the hardest days in medicine that, that you did draw down on that, like uh, back to wrestling and the lessons you learned because I, I know how hard med school and residency can be. And I don't believe you that uh, being a robotic surgeon isn't hard. Can you just uh, <laughs> tell us just a little bit about robotic surgery, what it is, and how you got into it? Um, so robotic surgery is, um, it's a, it's a way to do minimally invasive surgery. Um, and, and I say it's kind of like super laparoscopy. So we use keyholes as the incision and the axis into the patient's body. But now there, instead of you holding the instruments, there's an interface, there's a computer. And so, uh, instead of holding the instruments that are inserted in my patient's body, I'm sitting comfortably at a cockpit, what we call a console, and I put my head into the viewer and I see in three, di three dimension because there's a three-dimensional camera in the patient's belly. And I touch those controllers and they're all interfaced and so that the, there's a huge robot that rolls up to the patient, instruments that are inserted into the patient's belly, but I control it from 10, 20 feet away at the cockpit. That's robotic surgery. What is the advantage of that? Um, the, there's, so there's multiple advantages. One is that, so you get the advantages of a minimally invasive incision, right? Small incisions mm -hmm. for the patient. Mm -hmm. And from their perspective, look, who wants to have a large open incision if you can get in a, the op same operation done through little incisions? Mm -hmm. You know, for the surgeon, uh, there's multiple benefits. One is just ergonomics, especially these days, the hot, one of the hot topics is surgeon injury, um, repetitive motion injuries. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sitting comfortably, ergonomically at a chair and being able to do surgery and not have to contort your body, you know, wrestling with the patient <laughs> to get the surgery done um, leads to a, a, a longer day that you can uh, um, be in there for mm -hmm. without being uh, as exhausted. I think it will ultimately lead to longer careers for surgeons because they're going to have less injuries over the years. Um, and, um, you know, you get um, advancements in the tooling and then technologies and so that because the instruments are wristed mm -hmm. and not straight laparoscopic instruments, you can do more precise, uh, you know, sophisticated maneuvers inside the abdomen. And because you have three-dimensional vision coupled with the very precise movements, it brings uh, uh, precision and efficiency together. 
So, so Dr. Ian, I want to come back to sort of how you got where you are. And, you know, match day is coming here. And, uh, you know, I have to ask you about your match. This is the day <laughs> medical students find out if they've been accepted into a specialty and where they'll be doing their training for the next several years. It's the biggest day in medical school, match day. And you are one of the country and the world's leading robotic surgeons, yet you didn't match. So I want you to tell us the story and the lesson and the lesson in that. Um, Oh, man, you bring up one of the most painful uh, days uh, <laughs> of my life. Um, you know, and... Uh, I do it for a good cause, though. Yeah, well, I, I think that, that I also look back at that, and I joke around about it being painful, but, you know, I think that failure sometimes become your greatest strengths, and it certainly worked out that way for me. You know, um... I've always been the B plus A minus student. I was never the smartest kid in my class. And um, I always felt like it took me twice as long to learn something. But when I did learn it, I knew it better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's just the way that I'm wired. Um, and, and that's why I kind of always joke around that you don't have to be s the smartest kid in the class to go into medicine. Um, you know, and uh, so I did well, but I didn't do great. Uh, you know, my scores weren't the top. Um, I wasn't AOA. But I knew once I saw the field of urology that, like, I couldn't sleep at night. This is what I had to do in my life. I just knew that this was it. And um, and so um, when that day came, well, I didn't actually actually enter into match day with everybody else because for the few uh, very unfortunate people that didn't match, and urology is part of the early match process, I was told ahead of time I wasn't going to match. And so um, I went into a, a panic and then a depression um, because I realized that I was one of a handful of people that didn't, that didn't make it. So then you have to figure out what the game plan is without, without a lot of time to think about it. And so uh, a, lot of, a lot of people in this situation are scrambling for a spot. And, um, and, and there were a couple spots around the country that had not filled their spots, but they were very quickly filled. And so uh, as, I, as much as I tried to get into one of those spots, um, I, I quickly found out that they weren't available. So my next go-to plan was either I was going to take a year off and go research somewhere, or I was going to take a year of general surgery and reapply again. And there are pros and cons, and I've counseled many people through this process that have been in a similar situation and there's no correct answer but for me uh, what I realized was that I better um, you know go get a spot in general surgery and reapply and I guess that's the game plan I came up with and um, and so this was before the 80-hour work week and that was one of my most painful years of my life um, because I really <laughs> was abused during that year but it, it made me really grow up very quickly. And, and really what it did was it made me realize how badly I wanted to go into urology because I was willing to do an internship again if I got into another urology spot. And during that year, it really solidified that this is what I really wanted to do. And so um, one way or the other, I told myself I was going to figure out how to become a urologist. And, you know, um, the other thing that it did was it, it opened up my my application process. So in the beginning, being an East Coaster, and I, I just married somebody who was from North Jersey, I really limited my uh, applications to kind of the Northeast area. 
And um, the second time I reapplied in urology after not having matched the first time, I, I applied to a lot of other places. And you know, like the way life is, works is so funny. I ended up matching in Detroit, which happened to be the first robotic program in the country. So, you know, I was at the right place at the right time, but it had to be that I had to go through a difficult path to get there, right? So you loved urology, you discovered that, and it wasn't necessarily robotics, it was almost serendipity through this arduous path that led you to the birthplace or the leading uh, incubator for robotic surgery in urology, and that's where you discovered your love of um, robotics, right? And look where it took you. So I, I guess I'm summarizing that pretty well, that's yep. right. Um, what is it about robotics um, that you love, and that, or that you're? That, well, let me put it. Let me let me rephrase that if I can for a minute. I know that you and your colleague here, uh, Doctor Metro Metro, am I saying that right? Yes. Are sort of nicknamed MacGyver because you can after the old TV show because you're so good at solving problems and seem to be able to fix anything. I propose your mother in the washing machine, uh, but in terms of urological problems, so. Um, you know, I guess, uh, tell me what you love about the work you do with the robot and why you're so good at it. You know, what is it that, that makes you so good with the robot that you're able to do, solve all these problems? Um, I, I think that, um, that that's a very complicated question. Okay. I, I think that, um, part of it is, is, is one is that you need a foundation of, 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 of excellence, um, you know, where I was trained, um, that foundation was built on the incredible volume of surgery, and I had teachers that really invested their time with me. Um, they stayed late at night. Um, they they were willing to be patient with me, and um, through no shortcuts, you know. Every single person that came through that program in those years turned out to be very capable, incredible surgeons. And uh, what that taught me was that with a lot of volume and with teachers that were willing to really invest their time and effort in you, that you can routinely produce very good surgeons. So one is the foundation of excellence. The other part of it, I think, was this. um, my My mentors really forced me um, to, to be open-minded and to um, not always take the path that's always chosen. Um, they, they taught me to rethink operations to what made the most sense for what you do and not just do it beca- because that's the way it's always been done. And so I've always looked very critically um, at procedures that we offer patients and procedures that we do for patients. And I always have this kind of desire in me to, to always want to make it better, right? I'm not satisfied. And I think that that's one thing about about um, robotic surgery is that I think the people who really get good at it and the people who really like it are people who, um, to a fault, are, are perfectionists. You know, I think that, you know, because you're able to see to that level of clarity and you're able to do the things that precisely, um, you know, if you combine that with a personality that is... Um, that is always trying to find the best way to do it, trying to find a better way to do it. I mean, it's like it, it's like you're always competing against yourself. In some ways, that's a lot like wrestling, right? Mm-hmm. You walk off that mat and go, could you have done that 
a little bit better? Could you have tried a little bit harder? And I, I feel the same way when I walk away from an operation. In some, some, some cases, I go, I, I think I could have done that a little bit better, or I really like what I did there because that was better than the last operation. And you're always fighting yourself, you know. And I think that that's, you know, a really good analogy between sports or being really good at a hobby and then taking that, um, you know, into my field and saying, you know, day to day, that's my struggle. There, there seems to me a sense of a real improvisational piece to what you do, though. You, and you, you know, no surgery, or even though you may have done the same kind of thing many times, often they're new and they're different and they require you to on the fly, on the spot, make a decision, try to improvise, try to create something new and different. And um, I gather by the MacGyver nickname that you're really good at that. And I, uh, I guess reflect on that for a moment if you can. You know, it's it's. I mean, I think that there is probably something innate that I have in that tinkering ability that lends itself to being able to do this. I mean, there are some surgeons that I think are awesome surgeons in my field, but they are very methodical, um, and they don't like doing surgeries that are different. They like doing the same operation over and over and being really good at it. And to their credit, they are very good at what they do, Whereas in there's, excuse me, there's some part of me that when I see something weird walk into my office <laughs> and some kind of really unusual situation, there's something about me that gets excited because it forces me to really uh, um, analyze the problem. It, I like the fact that it's different and that I have to think about it and um, maybe rethink the operation, um, think about the steps and how I would do that differently and, um, and I, I think that that's probably a personality difference that I have versus some other surgeons who actually shun that, don't like that. Um, you know, but for me, there's a part of me that actually loves that. Is there um, an example that you would like to share of a procedure that maybe another surgeon might have acted more conventional, but you decided to push the boundaries a little bit and act out of your comfort zone or do something new and innovative? That maybe wasn't by the book. Wasn't by the book. Maybe um, there's a lot of exa- <laughs> yeah. examples. Yeah, examples. We of we love stories on this podcast. Okay. Maybe one comes to mind. You know. Yeah. Um, and so um, I, I think in the early part of my career, um, you know, there was a, there wasn't a lot of things that were published for the things that I was trying to do. And I remember waking up in a panic at like four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, knowing that I had some big operation, something different I was planning on doing. And what I would do was <laughs> I would open up a netters, as ridiculous <laughs> as that sounds, and just stare at the anatomy. And then I would go to an uh, open surgical atlas and read what like these, you know, um, surgeons that, that authored these chapters, they were all very famous surgeons, would write their words of wisdom at the end in a few paragraphs and show a couple pictures and uh, describing the way that they would do it. And, and, and I knew that I wasn't going to do it anything like that, but I would almost hold on to those things like talismans, like, you know, like almost mm-hmm. like, a, like a charm that it would help me somehow during the day that I was going to do this new procedure. So I remember around 2009, I had this patient who had uh, an advanced kidney cancer, and uh, not only was it the cancer in the, in the kidney, but it was invading into the vena cava, 
So it was, it was invading from the kidney to the renal vein and extending into the vena cava. And, um, and I had this crazy idea when I saw this that I wanted to do this robotically because it was not done like that at all robotically and it was done only through open surgery, through a big open incision. And uh, what I was going to do was follow the general principles that the open surgeons were gonna do. You have to clamp on the vena cava above the tumor thrombus. You have to clamp below the tumor thrombus. You have to um, clamp on the other side renal vein that was getting blood supply. And then you'd have to take um, and clip off the renal artery. Well, I was gonna do that all robotically and I felt like there's no, like in my mind, I thought there's no real reason why you couldn't do that robotically as long as you could gain access to those areas. And so um, I, I came in and told my team that we're gonna do this robotically and not open, you know, to some excitement from my residents. And, and, um, and then we, we ended up doing it and the case went beautifully, it went really well. And I remember uh, the patient got out of the hospital very quickly, the patient was very grateful. I don't think the patient even understood that this was something that different, right? Because they just had a good recovery. And I remember presenting this uh, at a worldwide meeting uh, in Chicago the next year, and I remember just getting massacred <laughs> <laughs> by other surgeons who were very angry that I had done it this way. Uh, and there was one surgeon who actually spoke up, uh, who was actually uh, one of the moderators for that session, who said, hold on a second there. I've done a couple like this as well, and they've done really well as well. And so I, I realized that I wasn't the only crazy one in the room. Since, since then, we've become good friends. I mean, that takes a lot of courage for you to do all this training to learn something one way or for other surgeons to be doing something a certain way, and then for you to push the boundaries and decide, I want to be the, on the frontier and have an idea and put that into motion. Isn't it is easier said than done? So I think that shows a lot. Well... I think that there's a very fine line between being innovative and, you know, versus being a fool. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's one thing to do it like in a science mm -hmm. lab. It's another thing is to do it on patients. And so the, the one thing that I have to say, I want to be careful when we talk about mm -hmm. innovation like this, mm -hmm. because, you know, it is very important. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters here is the patients, not your mm -hmm. ego, right. not trying to develop something. And so the one thing is that, um, you know, you had to have uh, done this with all the belts and suspenders. You know, we had open trays ready. We were, you know, the patient had to know. So I mm -hmm. told the patient that this was never been done before, or mm -hmm. at least so I thought, and um, um, that uh, we were going to try something different and that uh, you have to be brutally honest with the patient. Mm -hmm. and um, you know, fortunately for me along the way, as I made these small incremental steps in doing something novel, um, the patients uh, were told and the patients were agreeable uh, and they trusted me to take them to the next. Yeah, what was their response when you said that to them? You're gonna, I'm gonna do something new on you basically. Yeah, well, um, in some cases the patients would tell you that they don't want that and that's fine and then you either send it to a surgeon who's going to do it um, the traditional way, or I have to be willing to do it the traditional way and feel that I'm do I can do it well enough. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's there's definitely an ethical aspect to all this. Um, you know, and a lot of the patients, you know, they um, have met you in the office, 
and uh, they end up um, appreciating that you're being honest with them, and yet they're uh, they're there because they like you, they trust you, and uh, fortunately for me, they have been agreeable to to letting me proceed. It's my sense, Doctor, and that a lot of people have are in desperate straits when they come to you. They've tried other places. They traditional procedures won't work for them. They need they need the gift you have, um, and that's what brings them to you. And so uh, they're my senses are very receptive to your techniques because often that's their only hope. So for some things, that's true. For that kidney mm-hmm. cancer patient, um, you know, they could have gone the open traditional yeah. route. But you're you're right. I mean, many of the patients that have come to me over the years have come um, as an outside referral. They may have traveled quite a distance to get here. And, um, you know, they were offered traditional option at their hospital with their urologist. But they said uh, they were told, if you go up and speak to Dan, and uh, mm-hmm. he may offer you a minimum invasive option for that, um, you know, and when I give them the choice to have it done the traditional way or to have it done through um, a small incision, I think there's a huge attraction to being able to have that problem solved and corrected through minimally invasive incisions. So in the vast majority of the cases, the patient have been, have, uh, been seeking out a minimally invasive uh, option, and then they're happy to proceed with uh, my suggestion. Um, as a student who's up and coming and seeing a lot of new technical advancements and everything, do you think that robotic surgery is going to expand to way more surgeries and over time, maybe in my lifetime, where a lot more things are going to be done robotically? I do. I think that the, um, the, uh, the age of robotic surgery has only started. And um, the robotic platforms are only going to get much more sophisticated and the platforms are going to be broadened so that we can do different types of surgery. You know, I think that right now we're in the age of da Vinci robotics and it's more like a one size fits all type of platform. But in the future, I think they're gonna be much more specialized towards certain fields. And uh, I think that um, many surgeries, if not most surgeries, ultimately are gonna be done uh, using a robotic platform. The da Vinci is a um, machine for those who don't know it's a robotic machine to use I was gonna say what do you say to students uh, when they come to you and say you know I'm really good at Mario Kart do you think that would make me a good robotic surgeon <laughs> <laughs> you, you want the truth on that yeah, yeah. we do <laughs> I was always an average video game player okay. right? I would play with my friends and um, I was never the guy that would set the high score there was always some kid that was some kind of super user that would break the score for everyone, shadow the score. I was never that kid. So, um, you know, my my take on that is I think that there's um, video games, um, especially the ones that are fast moving, that have spatial, uh, that require spatial ability, really good eye-hand coordination. There is definitely a benefit in being good at those things because um, robotic surgery does incorporate some of those skill sets but you know robotic surgery isn't um a reactive game and like a a first person shooter or driver Mm -hmm. game right um i think that it also requires um a a lot of spatial understanding a deep understanding of the anatomy coupled with um coupled with um the eye-hand coordination but really the maturation process that that is involved 
in becoming a really good and capable surgeon, effective surgeon, there's a lot of mental disciplines that are embedded in there that are much more than what the video games offer to you. And so I would say that um, video gaming ability and eye-hand coordination is a small piece of that. Because I was going to say during the like uh, residency application, it could be you have to beat me in Mario Kart, and then you get the spot. <laughs> well, you guys could all beat me in Mario Kart, so that would be easy. <laughs> Here's another hard-hitting question for you. Tell me about your socks, and what is the deal with your socks? <laughs> well, so I'm not wearing any fancy socks today. Okay. Um, um, years ago, um, I, I, you know, I was building these teams in the operating room and I thought that would be a fun way to, um, to pull my team together. So we, uh, had this idea of wearing, uh, funny Asian socks, um, you know, whenever we operated, um, you know. Many years have passed, and a lot of the residents nowadays, I you know, don't necessarily wear the socks. We don't necessarily hand them out to everybody anymore because there were way too many people on my team. <laughs> but uh, you know, as a joke to keep it light, I do wear really silly Asian socks, um, and I call them Asian because I always find them whenever I go to Asia and walk around the markets. You know, little animals. Sometimes the English doesn't make any sense. Um, you're working in stocking feet when you're out there with a robot, right? Pretty much your feet are on, they have pedals, and your feet are on them, so you actually are working in your stocking feet. Is that right? Or, yeah, hmm? I get a lot of visitors, and they always kind of say, well, yeah, I definitely noticed your socks because when I operate, I always kick off my shoes, and I operate in my socks because you can feel the pedals a lot better. Mm -hmm. And they are always looking down and seeing, like, a stormtrooper or some kind of fuzzy animal on my feet. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, I got a, a few more I want to ask you. I don't know where Hank is. He's, he's going great, Dr. Henry. This has really been fun. I want to bring it back to Temple for a minute. What are the challenges? What are the rewards of working here? Well, I think the obvious is that because I'm a Temple grad, I graduated in 2001, Temple Medical School. Temple Medical yeah, School. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, it brings me great pride to uh, build a center of excellence here, um, especially uh, in urology. You know, um, when I first came to this department, they were a much smaller department, and uh, we weren't doing um, a lot of big index procedures uh, here. Um, since then, we uh, had the robots, and we had leadership that really supported uh, me being here. They uh, built us, uh, you know, state-of-the-art, actually best-in-class operating rooms in, in the country or worldwide. It really gave us the material needed to, uh, to be able to do uh, these really wonderful operations here at Temple Health. Um, and then also gave us uh, infrastructure and funding to be able to run a research uh, division that we could then publish and write about what we do. Um, you know, I think the challenges of being a temple is that, that, that unfortunately there's just a lot of bias uh, towards uh, coming to North Philadelphia uh, from a lot of the patients that live out in the suburbs. Uh, you know, I live up on the main line and, uh, um, and I, I think that a lot of uh, the, the patients that are from out there just naturally don't think about coming to Temple Health. Um, and they naturally think about uh, going 
either locally or to the other uh, medical centers, um, maybe because of marketing, uh, maybe because they're not located in North Philadelphia. And what I've really found uh, is a great um, source of the satisfaction is that many of those um, patients who come from those areas, many of them who are also very wealthy, some of them who have flown in, have just remarked on how good the care is here. And I'll tell you, I've worked at other health centers in Philadelphia, and um, it really comes down to culture. You know, from, you know, the person who greets you at the door that parks your car, from the person who sweeps the floor, the person that brings your food, to the person that transport you from the operating room to upstairs, to the nurses and nurse managers, and all the people that are in the operating room. And what I'll tell you is that I've never seen a place where we bat close to a thousand on every single patient. You know, I used to work at this very fancy floor where, you know, at another health center where, you know, it was like butler service and mahogany <laughs> walls and it, I could never get it right. The culture was never right. What I'll tell you is that we may not be as fancy here. We may not have as shiny buildings and have mahogany walls and butler service. Uh, but I'll tell you, hands down, every day, all day, our care is better and superior here. And because of that, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. That, that, that's all patients want. And I'll tell you that uh, I've been able to find that here at Temple, and it makes me very, very proud to say that. That makes me uh, feel so glad and appreciative to be here as a student as well. So I'm happy. <coughs> I'll, I'll tell you, you I, the, the one, the one um, statement that I had was from uh, a person who flew here with his private jet from Florida who uh, had access to all the best doctors um, in his life. And um, he had prostate cancer and he had bladder cancer and he went to the best known doctors um, during those years um, to have his operations. And then he ended up with a big complication that required robotic reconstructive surgery. This person flew in his private jet and um, I took care of his problem. It was a three hour operation. He was here maybe for a couple of days uh, and recovered here in the Boyer Pavilion um, on the eighth floor. And on his way out, he said, "I've Dan, I've been to the best hospitals. I've been to the best doctors all my life. It doesn't matter where it is. I'll get it because that's what I can pay for. That's what I can afford. He said, I've never been taken care of so well as I have during my two or three days here at, at Temple. And uh, I, was, I was really, really pleased to hear that. But at the end of the day, I already knew that that's what he was going to say because that's what all the patients do. <laughs> that's that, unbelievable. That is a great story. That is a great story. Um, one more question I wanted to ask you, and it sort of goes back to the beginning on your father. And, and I, I wanted to ask you how your faith sort of influences or intersects with your life in medicine. <clears throat> um, I know you're the son of a missionary, and... That's such a good question. It's it's such a good question because you're really now getting down to who I am as a person. Um, uh, I'll tell you that um, that there there is um, this there's a push and pull that I feel all the time, um, and one is that um, in this field. Um, in science in general, there's ge there's definitely this pull that um, it's all self-made, self-accomplished, 
it's in your control. And it's part, partly in, reinforced with residency and training and medical school that uh, you can control it, that, that um, it's up to you. And I'm not downplaying the importance of working hard and being diligent because all those things are very, very important and it's required of you to be good. Um, you know, but as uh, somebody who uh, believes that, um, that, that God is my creator and that um, uh, there are things of this world that I'm not in control of, right? Um, there's actually a great peace that comes with that because, you know, I've, I've, I've dealt with patient tragedies, very unfortunate things that have happened in the operating room and after, after the surgery. There is a peace that comes to me with my, my faith because I realize that I have my part to do, right, with great diligence, and it is required of me to do that, you know, for the glory of God. But I also feel that um, there are times when you can't control these things and you look to somebody beyond you for help, right, and for comfort. Um, and I bring that to my patients as well because I think that they also believe the same thing in many cases, not all cases, but they, they, they see that this is the way I practice and this is what I believe in, you know, and um, they come to me and they say, Doc, I know that you just did your best, that you gave everything for my dad, and I, and I believe that, that you, you know, knowing you as a person, knowing you as a physician, you have done that, right, and, um, and it, it, it does bring you uh, a great sense of peace, um, a better sense of understanding of this world sometimes and things that you can't really understand well because I know that I don't have all the answers. I know that I don't always have all the solutions. And I think that as a surgeon, that can be a great source of, of, of peace when you cannot ex explain everything, you don't have the answers for everything. Appreciate that. So you do helps you with the, what you have to carry, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I hit him with the kickers. Yeah, yeah, I think you know we're winding down, <laughs> and uh, this has been really a wonderful interview and a wonderful podcast. But Hank uh, closes. Yeah. So close, Hank. So now I just have three questions that we ask every single guest, and um, so, what's your favorite place to go out to eat in Philly? <laughs> oh boy um, I don't know how to answer that because it depends on if it's fine dining well, just what comes into your heart here whatever you want or you can give us you can give us more than one answer but there's a uh, great there's a great Korean restaurant um, um, on Old York Road and Cheltenham Avenue called Dubu D-U-B-U which is really a Korean way to say tofu and um, it it's uh, a place that me and my family love to go eat okay. when we want good comfort food, Korean food. We need to compile a list. Dubu, D-U-B-U, we should. Okay. And like okay. make sure we go to all these places. Okay, um, if you weren't a doctor, what would you be? If I wasn't a doctor, well, I wish that I could be a pilot, but I was too short and too blind. <laughs> uh, I'd probably enjoy being an engineer or a teacher okay i thought you'd say wrestling coach but i was wrong <laughs> on that okay <laughs> right. and All lastly right. uh what do you do to to escape do to escape um 
skiing with the family. There's probably yeah. nothing else that I like more than skiing with the family. That's nice. That's great. Yeah. All right, Dr. Dr. Ren, you've been a fabulous guest here on uh, our Narratives of North Broad podcast, and uh, hope we didn't make it too rough on you bringing up match day. Um, I'm definitely I'm, glad we have you instead of mahogany walls. <laughs> right, I know. All Thank right. you. Thanks it's, a lot. It's been great.